Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. I was reflecting after the uh, worship uh, time, the song uh, service, last, uh, last service, was just reflecting on uh, how much I've learned in uh, the past year and how valuable how absolutely necessary, uh, how rich it always is when we're able to gather together as the body of Christ. You know, I don't think that I will ever be able to take it for granted like I think maybe I was before COVID. You know, I was, uh, I was a pastor's son. I was born... Uh, in a pastor's home, the grandson of a pastor, all of that. All my life I've been a pastor. It's all I've ever known. I've been in more church services than I can remember, preached more sermons than I can remember, uh, heard more sermons than I can remember. But I'll tell you, coming through all of this with you and just being back together again, uh, I have gotten a glimpse of the body of Christ that perhaps I've never had before. And there is something powerful, something powerful, something rich, something refreshing about gathering together with God's people in one space and singing the praises of God and remembering the excellence of Jesus. There is nothing to compare with it, nothing. And there is something unique and powerful about seeing the same faces. The Lord bless you. We need to give you gifts for always sitting on the front row. But you all used to, but you moved back. I don't know what's going on there, but there's something wonderful about seeing the same faces and new faces, but the same faces doing life together under the banner of the cross and for the cause of Jesus. I love you, and I I don't think I will ever quite see you the same, but what I do see when I see you is a beautiful, beautiful work of God, and I am grateful to the Lord for you. All right, well... I think it's time to get to the Word, huh? All right, let's do that. We are uh, looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11 this morning as we make our way through this series entitled The Battle. And we've been saying throughout the series, basically this, conflict's a part of life. We know that, we get that. But for believers, there is a particular kind of conflict that is real for them, and it is known, best known as spiritual warfare. And uh, the Bible says that this warfare comes or has its origin in uh, one of three places. It comes from the world around believers. It comes from the, the devil beyond believers. And it comes from the flesh inside believers. And today, I want to press uh, on in 
teaching you slowly and deliberately about the greatest enemy you and I face in the battle that we're in, and that is the devil beyond us. And so with your Bibles open, we want to dive uh, deep again into 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Here, Peter says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then Peter says, with that kind of humility in place, then he says to believers, then you'll be ready to live and, verse 8, be sober-minded and you'll be ready to be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The reason you must be sober-minded, the reason you must be watchful is that you have an enemy who is always watching you. Now, when he shows up, and he will, then you will be able and ready to, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Lord God, this is your word, and uh, we hear it gladly this morning. My heart, Father, is burdened. For those who gather here today, especially for those who, Father, are broken, for those who are disappointed, for those, Father, who are feeling the weight, the heaviness of challenges and attacks. Father, I, I pray this morning that for those who have tried, who have sought, but feel as if they still walk in darkness, still walk oppressed, still walk enslaved. I pray that today, 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 they might find freedom in Christ, that they might find it for the first time, or that, Father, believers might come again to it and experience that freedom that only you can give in a world where we face an enemy who is far more cunning and far more powerful than we could ever be. May it be so, Lord Jesus. We pray and ask it in your name. Amen. So as we come to 1 Peter, one of the things we realize in that book is that Peter is actually writing to uh, men and women who are followers of Jesus, but who are suffering, both, watch now, for their faith and their faithfulness. They're suffering because they trust in Christ. They're suffering also because they have been faithful to Christ. And they, what they've experienced is a maltreatment and a discrimination, a maltreatment and a discrimination that are cultural, local, and physical, real, I mean, genuine uh, discrimination and mistreatment. But what they're also facing is something supernatural. 
They're facing supernatural in the midst of all of their difficulties. They're facing a supernatural attack by a supernatural enemy. And so Peter writes to encourage these believers to stand strong and to stay faithful. He he wants them to keep living godly lives in spite of everything, regardless of what they're facing, regardless of what they're experiencing. He wants them to stand strong, stay faithful, live godly lives, to, to live in Christ as good citizens and model employees and gentle wives and understanding husbands and especially he wants them to live as a people who have a great humility because he knows that if they will do that when they're under pressure, when when they're experiencing discrimination and mistreatment, that they will point to the one who alone is the real hope, the only hope, And the only real source of strength for this life, the God who makes that kind of life possible by grace through faith in his son. And so here in in 1 Peter 5, we find Peter wrapping his letter up and he's speaking directly about this one who brings to them a supernatural conflict. He, He is ultimately the source of their suffering the one whom Jesus describes in John chapter 8 as the devil, a murderer, who has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. Now, having looked at Satan's story and at his ambitions and at his methods, today we want to examine how he can be faced and how he can be overcome. Let me say to you one more time how urgent this is for you if you're a believer because the devil can't get at God directly and because he failed to destroy God's savior son, the devil and his fallen compatriots are focused on doing as much damage as possible, striking at the God they can't touch by attacking his children. And that's why it's so vital to know how the devil is overcome. Now, what I want you to see with me is that in in, uh, verses 5 through 11, there are three proven tactics for defeating the devil's attacks. They include these, advanced preparation, constant watchfulness, and a ready resistance. Advanced preparation, constant watchfulness, ready resistance. And these tactics are central to Peter's overall strategy for overcoming this cunning, powerful enemy of ours. Let's look at at, uh, the first one. Look with me in verses five through seven. See the tactic, the first tactic for overcoming the evil one is a kind of advanced preparation. Now, Peter reminds believers of something that the Old Testament prophets also gave a lot of attention to, and it is a simple fact. He states it right out of the gate in verse 5. This is what he says. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And on the basis of that fact, God always opposing the proud, God always ready to give grace or strength to those who are humble. On the basis of that, here is what Peter says. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, 
under the mighty hand of God so that, this is critical, at the proper time he may exalt you, live your life casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, at first blush, this is almost unexpected advice. And, and it's good to pause and ask the question, why, why does Peter mention this here? Before speaking directly about their adversary, the devil, why does he introduce this notion of humility? Why, why does he introduce this notion of pride? Why does he make such a big deal about it before he actually moves on to talk about this adversary, the devil? Here's the reason. In Peter's mind, spiritual battles are won and lost right here. Spiritual battles are won or lost with the presence or the absence of humility and pride. And so he starts with a big picture. We see him starting with a big picture. And he reminds believers of the fact that the God of the Bible is a God who, verse 5, always opposes the proud and always gives grace to the humble. Now, let's pause and talk just a moment about pride. When the Bible speaks of pride, when you, when you see the word pride or when you see any of its synonyms, the Bible can use it either positively or negatively. The foundational idea at work when it comes to pride is the idea of living, watch now, affirming, celebrating, and elevating any kind of excellence that you see or discover. So if you see something that's excellent and you affirm it, you, you celebrate it, you elevate it, you are taking pride in it. Pride is a disposition that produces then a kind of conduct, a tendency that produces a kind of activity. Pride, when, when it is at work and we're celebrating and, and uh, we're, we're uh, affirming and elevating something excellent that we find, leads naturally to boasting to boasting, the activity of boasting in the excellence we see by acknowledging it and expressing joy in it. When I take pride in my family, when you take pride in your family, when you take pride in a job well done, what, what you're doing is you are celebrating the excellence that you see. And, and when you acknowledge the excellence and you express joy over it, you're boasting in it. Legitimate spiritual pride does boast, and it says things like this, see who God is and see what God has done. This pride and boasting is always in legitimate, positive uh, pride, is always in the Lord himself. It is a godly pride because it's anchored in the, watch now, excellence of who God is and the excellence of all that he does. And it is always done, this boasting in the Lord is always done with great humility by the boaster. Because the boasting is in who the Lord is rather than in who I am. That's exactly what we see the psalmist doing in Psalm 34. The psalmist says, for example, my soul makes its boast, takes pride in the Lord. So let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify, he says, the Lord with me, and let us exalt, let us boast in, let us take pride in the Lord together. Now, 
Of course, at the same time, we know this, pride can also be negative, and it is this negative pride that God opposes. This pride involves a celebration and affirmation and an elevation ultimately of self. It produces an arrogance before God and an insensitivity toward others. It presumes much for itself in terms of what self deserves. It makes personal preference a spiritual priority. It focuses on what it believes it deserves from others. We can call this pride a selfish pride because it's anchored in the excellence of self and what self wants. And whether it's coming from the Old Testament prophets or from the New Testament apostles, the message of both is simply this, pride matters. And the kind of pride we cultivate has real life consequences. Peter's point is this, God opposes or refuses and defeats those whose lives are marked by selfish pride. What I find curious is that Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah, seems to point out that this ultimately was what undid Satan. You know, Satan originally was the lead angel, right? And what ultimately was his undoing, Isaiah says, came when he decided that he would make himself like God, when he would set up his own throne where God's throne is, that he would climb to the highest heights of heaven and take his own place there. God's opposition was swift and sure, and Satan fell from his haughty high place. Proverbs says rather powerfully that there are seven things God hates. And do you know what is at the very top of the list? Haughty eyes. Pride. Now what I want you to see this morning is that that God hasn't changed. But why is he that way? Why is God so very opposed to pride? To this kind of selfish pride? Again, Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 2, explains that human pride always directs the attention and the energy of our lives away from God to lesser things. Even if our pride is a religious pride carried about in the name of God, it, it directs the attention and the energy of our lives away from God to lesser things. And so selfish pride says, I'm right, I'm more worthy, I'm excellent, you should be like me. Proud people like that swagger. They swagger. Religious pride says, God and I are right. God and I are excellent. We are more excellent than you. You should be like us, God and me, which is just a religious way, a religious package, a religious way to sneak in. You ought to be like me. See how right I am? See how good I am? See how excellent I am? Don't you want to be like me? You really should. It's God and I. 
share the same excellence. Proud religious people swagger too. But whatever form it takes, when selfish pride is present among people, God's response is to reject and oppose them, to, to weaken and defeat them with the, with the aim of bringing them hopefully to a place where they acknowledge they aren't who they thought they were. When selfish pride appears among God's people, his response is to refuse them rather than reject them. And he thrusts them away from the, from the grace of his help and his strength and his blessings. He opposes them first by leaving them on their own and then disciplining them with difficulties that bring them to see and confess that only he is excellent and all their boasting should be in who he is and what he's done for them in spite of them. So when a selfish pride is present in his people, God replaces his gracious presence with uh, his discipline. And that's why Psalm 138 tells us that though God is highly exalted, he nevertheless will concern himself with the lonely. He's drawn to the humble. But at the same time, he keeps himself aloof from the haughty. And this is where, for the believer, when pride sets itself up in a believer's life, joy ends, peace flees, the love of God goes unfelt and largely unknown, not because it's disappeared, not because God has stopped loving, but because they don't have his gracious presence at work manifesting it in a way they can receive. When pride sets, up, sets itself up in the life of a believer, there's this extraordinary striving that kicks in. And I will tell you, no one eventually is more miserable than the believer who has become proud and persists in it And having been proud and persisting in it only discovers over time that God's gracious presence has somehow strangely gone absent and his disciplining presence has come. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to recognize where the devil opposes believers to harm them and to get at God, God opposes proud believers to help them and to heal them and to bring them back to himself. And when godly pride is restored and present again, God draws near in his great grace and he affirms and he helps and he strengthens. Our humility before him attracts his grace. Now you say, what in the world does this have to do with spiritual warfare? I'm so glad you asked. Can I tell you, Satan cannot stay where God's grace has come. Satan cannot stay where God's grace has come. When God's grace comes into the life of a believer, 
that woman, that man, having humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God, have the benefit of the might of God in and over their lives. Where God's grace is, Satan cannot stay. But where God's grace, the grace of strength, has gone missing, Satan has a field day. God's grace, attracted by our humility before him, is always the advanced preparation every believer needs for the spiritual battle we all face. Loved ones, this may surprise you, but the very best way to be sure you live defeated in the Christian life is to make God, not Satan, Satan's already your opponent, but to make God your opponent by doing what Satan did and loves to, to see you do. Make much of yourself. Make too much of your worries. Make too much of your cares. Make too much of your problems. Make too much of your needs. Make too much of your preferences. Make too much of your quiet times. Make too much of your prayers. Make too much of the people you've witnessed to. Make too much of your godliness. Make too much of your righteousness as if somehow your excellence is an excellence you share with God. If you do this, making too much of yourself, too much of your worries and cares, too much of your problems, too much of your needs, too much of your preferences, too much of your practices, if you do this, here's what it will mean. It will mean that you live unprepared and vulnerable to every attack Satan has coming for you. And if Satan attacks you, because of a pride or while there is a pride that God is opposing in you, you will lose every single time and pay a price every single time. You will lose and lose and lose and lose, and lose, and lose, and lose, and lose, and lose, and lose yet again. You will never be ready for his attacks. You will never have the strength of God to draw on. Because with pride, with your pride, you have pushed the grace of God, the strength of God to the margin. And in exalting yourself, made yourself a really good target for your enemy to come after. So the very first step to overcoming this enemy who is more powerful and more cunning than you and I are is to stay ready for the conflict by first pursuing humility. And that is why Peter counsels all of us saying, live Live humbling yourselves, verse 6, therefore under the mighty hand of God. Submit to him. Submit to his will, his ways, his wants. Do that so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I love this. Now, don't miss this. 
He says, submit your, humble yourselves, submit yourselves to him, his will, his ways, and his wants, so that at the proper time, in the midst of the attacks that you will experience and that you will have, you will find the grace of God present and the grace of God active, watch now, lifting you up, exalting you, lifting you up out of every difficulty, lifting you up in the midst of every attack, giving you victory in the midst of all that your enemy does to you. Humble yourselves and he will lift you up. Peter goes on and says, live casting all your anxieties on him because you know that he cares for you. This is the way to live. You've got an enemy. You can't do anything about it. He's coming. If you belong to Christ, he's aiming for you. You can't stop him. You can't dissuade him. He's coming. But that doesn't mean you're defenseless. It doesn't mean you're helpless or hopeless. Here's what you do. Lay yourself before him. Say, I'm not enough. Live like you're not enough. Live as if we just sang, he's first in your heart. Put yourself under his will and his ways. Decide that all your anxieties and all your cares are really better off with him than with you. And what you will find is that you live in victory. Do you see that little phrase there, cast all your anxieties on him because you know that he cares for you? There's somebody here that needs to hear this, and I want to say it as clearly as I can. Somebody here needs to hear this. Somebody here needs to remember this. Somebody here needs to be reminded of this. Are you ready? The love of God for you is always greater than the hatred of your enemy for you. He cares for you. Some of you right now, you are in an incredibly hard place. And you're wondering to yourself where God has gone. You're wondering to yourself why God has perhaps not shown up. And Satan has come, and like he always does, he's encouraging you to question your faith. Is this God worth believing in or not? Where is he? He's challenging you to detour your faithfulness, to take this situation into your own hands. And rather than handing it to the Lord, take it to yourself and try to fix it yourself. And some of you are literally at a place where you're wondering whether God does care for you. Does he really love me? If he did, why is this happening to me now? Welcome 
spiritual warfare. The battle is real. And if he can get you to doubt or question whether God really cares, he's got you. He wins. But he cares for you far more than the enemy could ever hate you. Loved ones, the battle we are in at the very beginning is ours, but the victory at the end is always his. The first step to overcoming the devil is cultivating something that the devil doesn't have and that God loves to find, and that's humility. And because a God of grace always resists the proud, the devil has no real chance with the humble. Having seen the advanced preparation that conflict with the devil requires, Peter turns then to the next tactic, and it's one of constant watchfulness. Do you see it in verse 8? Believers, he tells us, not only need the attitudes of humility and submission to be prepared for conflict with Satan, they also need to practice certain ongoing actions. Well, what are they? What Peter recommends two steps. First, he says, be sober-minded. And then second, he says, be watchful. Be sober-minded and be watchful. To be sober-minded is to be alert in one's mind, to be alert in one's thinking and judgment. Spiritually speaking, it's to live seeing things around you as God shows them to you and, and to endeavor to see everything as God sees them. One of the great gifts that God gives to his children is this capacity to be sober-minded. You say, well, what does that exactly look like and how does that work? The beauty of it is this. God gives to us this capacity by giving us a personal relationship with him, by giving us his word, helping us to understand it. He gives us this capacity to see everything through the lens of a sovereign God who loves us, who is active for us, and who will not give up on us. Now watch. Whether I've just experienced my greatest success or whether I've just experienced my greatest, hardest uh, tragedy, Looking at my successes and even my tragedies through the lens of a sovereign God who loves me, cares for me, and has already declared victory for me means that my greatest tragedy is never as tragic as it could have been. And my greatest success is never as great as I would have imagined it to be. Because there is no tragedy, he will not turn into triumph, and there is no success that can begin to match what he has for me in Christ. Have you ever had terrible news and had perhaps an, an emotional response? Anybody ever overreacted to bad news? 
And 24 hours later, you wake up and you realize you just made a bad situation a whole lot worse. Any of you ever done that? Yeah. Do you know what happened? You weren't sober-minded about it. A follower of Jesus has the capacity to see the tragedy, to see the success, and to see the real measure of it through the lens of a sovereign God who does not fail. You gotta be careful. You've gotta be sober. Stay alert. Keep looking at life as it really is. Look at it through the lens of God's sovereignty. To be watchful is to be focused in attention. Here, it's to be watchful for sin, watchful for temptation, watchful for opportunities to sin, which are all uh, uh, the attacks of the evil one. And this is a, especially an important tactic for believers because we're all prone to a kind of spiritual drowsiness in which we fail to see everything that God sees. And we can miss the signs of the presence and the activity of evil like the rest of humanity tends to do. There is a spiritual drowsiness that leaves us careening into evil thoughts and evil acts and evil consequences. This is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. This is how Satan and, and, uh, came to be established here as an occupier of God's earth. It was because Adam and Eve weren't sober-minded. They weren't watchful. And when Satan came to them and, and he said, um, did, did God really say you shouldn't eat that? And he began to question God's character and his motives, saying, does God really care for you? I don't really think he cares for you. I think he's trying to put one over on you. I think he knows that if you eat of that fruit, that you're going to become just like him. You can't trust him. You can't trust him. Why did he say you could eat from any tree but not that one? You can't trust him. And because they weren't watching, because they weren't sober, they were taken by surprise, beguiled and bullied, and then drawn by temptation into the sin and rebellion we all suffer from to this very day, to this very moment. Do you want to know why believers have adulter uh, adulterous affairs? Do you want to know why? You do, I can tell. You all sat up. Do you want to know why? Thank you. You know what? Uh, yeah. The reason? Why? Somebody wasn't staying awake and watching. They stopped. They forgot the end of verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. They stopped watching their enemy, but their enemy never stopped watching them. And just when you think you've outwitted him, you're more cunning than he is. And you can dabble in something that God says you shouldn't touch. You can be very sure the one that you forgot to watch for already knows. And he is right Somebody in this room may be about to ruin their family. Throw away their marriage. Do damage to their children. Because you're not. Loved ones in a life where we easily fall into spiritual sleepiness, we've got to remember we're faced with a prowling enemy who never sleeps who is always alert, always watching, always hungry, and always ready to attack our marriages, our families, our churches, our communities. He's always ready to steer the sleepy and the distracted away from the gracious strength of Christ into harm. But oh, when a person comes by faith to Christ... He or she's given the ability to stay vigilant, to stay watching, to keep receiving and understanding the picture of the world and of evil that God's word and, the, and his spirit supply. They're, they're enabled to know and sense satanic strategies and activities. They're enabled to think clearly about them. They're able to see them for what they are, dangerous, destructive, and deadly. And they're able to say no to them and no to them and no to them in the strength that God gives if they stay spiritually awake. This is not a game. This is not a test. Sin hurts. Sin does damage. Sin does destruction. You got to stay awake.
Well, God, your word tells us that pride comes before destruction and haughtiness before fall. Your word tells us the pride, selfish pride, leaves us unprepared and incredibly vulnerable to the attacks that are coming. Oh, God, I'm pleading with you, please, wake us up. Wake us up. Wake us up. One of the hardest things for us to see is our pride. Our boasting in our own excellence. Our boasting in the excellence of something less than or someone less than or other than you. Oh God. While we need not fear this enemy, oh how we must respect this enemy. For he is more cunning and more powerful than we will ever be. And apart from Christ, our spiritual pride makes us ready pray. Lord God, today I'm pleading for the lives and well-being of your people, for the well-being of our marriages and our families, for the well-being of our church, for the well-being of our communities. Oh, God, we as your people need desperately to be done with pride and to walk in a humility that allows your grace to flow freely to us and through us. that keeps us alert and ready and sober for the attacks are coming and they are already here. Keep us from smearing the name of Jesus. Keep us from doing the harm that Satan would love to see us do. Grant to us the fresh experience of your love, your joy, your peace that comes from bowing in your presence and saying, not my will, but yours be done. If I'm going to boast, I will boast in nothing save Christ and his cross. May that be true of us, Lord God, for Jesus' sake. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. 
My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.